cognitive diversity, which of course goes back to almost all of our work going back 30 years, which is, you know, when you start looking at the places that produce mostly intellectual property, the diversity has to do with all kinds of diversity and particularly cognitive diversity, how you think about things differently, right? And they're more than just these kind of Myers-Briggs typing indicator kinds of things. So our work goes all the way to looking at stock prices, right? So we've got a quantitative engine that goes behind this as well looking at culture, competencies, communities, etc. But if you if everybody around you basically is the same type of thinker, you don't get to the Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our mini-series, the Creative Mindset mini-series with Jeff and Stanley DeGraff. If you missed part one, please go back and check that out. For this next part, I want to talk more about developing this this creativity mindset. You know, you're, I like your made-up words here, creativizers develop, creativizing mindset. Can you talk about, you know, if that's something that I desire, I want to get better at that, and I don't believe you're just born with it or not. Can, can you talk about ways that I can increase that capacity in myself? Yeah, just a couple of things right off the bat. It's a, it's a great question, Jess. What I'm suggesting here, what we're suggesting here is thinking about thinking, right? Thinking about where you have blind spots, where you can't see, thinking about the ruts that you're in. So think about it when you have a problem. You ever been in that situation where you can't get it off your mind and you're miring and the wheels are spinning and then you go for a walk or you go to bed or you go work out and you get your mind off of it and all of the sudden, because the angle of your thinking is different, all of a sudden solutions begin to present themselves. It feels magical, doesn't it? You know, one of my favorite things is I'm on planes all the time. I'm a two million mile guy on Delta. So I'm always on a plane, although recently not because of the pandemic. But what's interesting is I'll always sit next to somebody and they'll tell me about a terrible thing that's going on in their life. And I'll give them just some very, not even brilliant insights, just some general thoughts. And what happens is inevitably they'll say, wow, you've really helped me solve this problem. Well, I haven't. Let's not take a bow for that. All I've done is I've changed the angle of their thinking. So the way we do this ourselves is really we say that there are these eight things you do. First, you got to notice when and where and how you're creative. And I want to double back on that in a minute. That's important. You have to be prepared at all times to capture creative ideas when they begin to flow. I can't tell you how many times I meet people who said, I had a creative idea, but I kind of lost it. Well, you weren't prepared for it. Now, pay attention to who and what gives you and takes your energy. I'm going to come back to this, too. This is a big issue for me. You know, there are people who just suck all their light right out of you. And there are people who call you at 2 in the morning and you're a live wire. It's just amazing how that works. Consult the muses in your mind, which is a fancy way of saying, well, we could talk about this. Your mind has what I call primary and secondary functions. So your mind talks to you. It's called inner speech. There's a famous psychologist named Zavatsky who used to write about this. And what it means is your mind a lot of times tries to tell you something that you're not paying attention to very, very much. Uh, look for signs and incongruities and anomalies. I think this is one of the things that's really made my career. I look at things and go, that doesn't look like it goes with that. And inevitably, that's an opportunity. That's something that doesn't quite fit yet. You know, challenge boundaries and authority. You know, how many times have we heard that? Almost all entrepreneurs talk about that. There are people who are trying to hem you in. 
you know, how do you do this? I run into a lot of this with these big companies because I don't attack from the middle. I'm going to come in from the edges where it's hard for them to defend, right? Escape assumptions about how things should be. This is one of the biggest things right now with social media. If everybody could just calm down, you know, oh, yeah. You know, young people, they're not getting married and they, they don't believe in religion the way I do. And and oh, by the way, their you know, their their view of capitalism is different. I'm like, yeah, OK, you know, something else will emerge. You know, why is it that that it has to be the way it is today? That's what progress is. Progress is different. and It'll be different for their kids. Right. And then finally, have a sense of destiny. And I'm sure your entrepreneurs tell you this. You know, if you're building something better or new, your mindset has to be you're in it for the long game, because if you do anything that's different, which was innovation is a form of positive deviance. If you do anything that's positively deviant, the world comes by and tries to beat the stuffing out of you. And part of being a successful entrepreneur, I've been one, I've been around all my life. Is that you got it? It's not about giving a punch. It's about taking a punch. That's the big thing that I think young people get wrong. It's not about giving a punch. Can you take a punch? And, you know, do you have a sense of destiny to keep going? So those are my boiling down, Stanley and I boiling down probably 30 years and probably 100 research studies about creativity of in layman's terms. And what, sense making. And sense making, yes. And, and sense making research. Well, and. You know, it would be great is, you know, I, I know we've been working on this document together here that I'm looking at. It'd be great to like type up a version of this, like a, like a teaser for the book that we can just make downloadable on the website. So when people come to this episode, they can just download this list instead of taking notes while they're out walking the dog, listen to this. Are you down for that? Should we do something like sure. that? Okay, great. So everybody go to graystokemedia.com and come to Jeff and Stanley's page and we'll, we'll have a download there for you. Um, we also already have a sample chapter. Sure. So. We'll make sure. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Can we put a link to that on there as yeah, well? Sure. Well, well, Stanley, can you talk about this sense-making class with Carl? Is it Carl yes, Weick? Carl Weick. So okay. it's, he's, he's like my favorite professor because yeah, it's probably my favorite class. He's a very, Carl Weick is actually a very well-known researcher in this area about sense-making. So he started with looking at things like the Men Gulch disaster, which is like where the firefighters died and, you know, accidents in NASA, things like that. You know, big disasters. You look at a lot of big disasters. And his thing is, why did it happen? You know, why did people choose to do what they did? So where does that decision-making come in from? What information did they have? Did they ignore information? Did they not see information? And I think this is actually very pertinent right now because there are so many, you know, we talk, <laughs> there are so many things about like fake media, the, the words about fake media or whether or not something is factual or not and so forth. And I read a lot of articles on this over the years and I see it especially now, it's just a matter of like, there are a lot of articles now in a lot of different in different outlets that talk about a lot of times when people are confronted with facts that are different from their understanding of the facts, instead of changing their mind, they actually double down. And this happens all the time because what happened is like they just could not figure out why their belief is so different and they think that that might you know in order for them to explain it away then they make assumption of, oh no that's that's a conspiracy or that's wrong that's fake somebody's trying to cheat me or whatever so instead of instead of being open and kind of think back and say why am i thinking the way i'm thinking you know d d does it mean what i think it means maybe it doesn't 
And I think that, so, that class is just, you know, focused on that in terms of how do you actually sense make in the world? Yeah, so I'm, I'm interested, you know, I really like the science around, you know, rapid skill acquisition and what happens in the brain with myelinating neural connections when we practice things outside the comfort zone repeatedly, right? Mm -hmm. So when you say that, I think, oh, that'd be a really great skill to not be just stuck in old ruts, right? Yeah. To to not dismiss opportunities, right. to not, you know, to to like cultivate that intellectual humility when faced with new data, whatever. Yeah. And yet knowing that I'm a human, I know that there's so many things that uh, are inefficient about that and the body seeking, in, this body is seeking efficiency, yeah. right? So any thoughts about what I as an individual entrepreneur can be repeatedly doing to make think, that my habitual approach? Yeah, no, I, that's a great, great question. Because I think for me, what works for me is that I always look for disconfirming feedback, intentionally looking for that anomaly or that disconfirming feedback that tells me what I'm thinking is wrong. I think the other way to get yeah. is surround yourself with diverse co cognitive diversity, which of course goes back to almost all of our work going back 30 years, which is, you know, when you start looking at the places that produce mostly intellectual property, the diversity has to do with all kinds of diversity and particularly cognitive diversity, how you think about things differently, right? And they're more than just these kind of Myers-Briggs typing indicator kinds of things. So our work goes all the way to looking at stock prices, right? So we've got a quantitative engine that goes behind this as well looking at culture, competencies, communities, et cetera. But if, you, if everybody around you basically is the same type of thinker, you don't get disconfirming feedback. And if you never have constructive conflict, what you get is passive aggressive behavior. The death of innovation and creativity is not conflict, it's apathy. Right. It's when everybody basically goes along with it. Mm -hmm. That's why my point about looking for anomalies, that this is not, this is not how creative people typically function. And, there's, and the, I like the word you used, humility. I think there's a part to this where you have to know that you don't know. Yeah. I, I'll give you a good example of this. I have a class it's, uh, it's, uh, at Michigan. I teach a bunch of classes there, but one of the classes I have is on change. And now that we're in a COVID environment, it's going to be online. So I have two choices. I can either build the class to be online or I can find a way to do something very different. So when I started trying to think about different ways of doing this, I said, I'm not getting disconfirming feedback. So I started get, bringing in some of the people from our innovatrium, from our institute or innovation institute, the young people, different, different parts of the world, right? Different ideas about the world. And I said, I want to get some feedback. And when they started giving me feedback, something occurred to me, Jess, which is the wrong person is building the class. I said, so here's what we're going to teach. These are the things you need to know to be an expert at this. But how we're going to do it, I'm going to turn over to you. This is going to be your project, right? All of the sudden, those blind spots start being filled in with things I would have never thought of in a million years. But in order to get there, you have to have uh, intellectual humility. And courage, so, because um, you have to be able to have the courage to say I was wrong. Yeah. I'm changing my mind. Yep. So I, I think I'm the smartest guy I've ever met. That doesn't occur to me naturally. How do I, how do I get myself to do that more? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it occurs to, I'm not sure when I was young, it would have occurred to me either. I was a very young 25 year old PhD presidential scholar kid, you know, I, what the way, the way it occurs to me is whenever I would try and do things the way other people told me to do them, I would fail. And whenever I tried to do things that I was sure I knew how to do them, but I, but I actually didn't, I would fail. So I have a story. I won't, I won't spend a lot of time with this, but I'll tell you a real story. I had a situation when I was at Domino's where I was given an impossible task. 
And it was basically McDonald's was going to enter the, the pizza market. And I was supposed to keep them out of the pizza market. <laughs> that was supposed to be my job. And remember at the time, they're like, you know, a bazillion times bigger than we were. We were, I think we just passed a billion dollars when they, when they uh, got into this. And so, you know, what happened was I thought I had an answer. I thought I was clever. And I went all the way to, to this answer. And I lost an enormous amount of money in a short period of time. That's humilité. I mean, that's eating a lot of your words. And then what happened quite by accident, I met a person who had a very different, he was kind of an old guy, he's a former professional basketball player, had some very different ideas about things. I won't get into all the details of this, but I listened to it. And I realized that he didn't have the answer either, but if my answer met his answer, there would be an answer. And what happened is in a very short period of time, for a very short period of time, we cornered the block cheese market. And we kept McDonald's out of the pizza business. Then we got in trouble, that's a different issue. You know, you get, you know, you always get in trouble for, <laughs> but if you're too creative, they changed the rules, right? And they, that's what they did. They changed the rules. And I got in trouble, but then I got out of trouble because they, re, you know, because I, they, those were, rules weren't in place when I did it. But the point, the point is the disconfirming feedback was, oh, I can get everything right. And this is the problem entrepreneurs have. Entrepreneurs have a, have a fallacy that if they built one company, right, that they think they know how to do it. And that's an enormous fallacy, right? Or they think that they've got the insight to do it. And that's why what you normally see, people who think they're serial entrepreneurs usually fail in the second effort, overwhelmingly, like 80%. And the people that the 20% that make it realize that there's a difference and they go up the hill with a different group of people. Tell me more about that. Well, about being successful. You're your venture capitalist. You're a venture capitalist and you've got a person in your biotech guy and you're in San Diego and somebody's Red Rock or Apollo or somebody's got, you got a, Kleiner Perkins, I don't know, somebody's somebody who's into this. The notion is most of those people who've had a biotech that won were at the right place at the right time, right? They had the right drug at the right time. It wasn't that they were particularly good at building that business. And you see this all the time with companies that, that uh, are successful. And then the next company they try and build fails. The people who are the serial entrepreneurs that the venture capitalists keep going back to, they have some basic ideas, but the basic ideas are very malleable. So the team that they know that they need a team to go up the hill with, but they change what kind of team they're going up the hill with. The specialist last time was a specialist on buffering agents. This one's a specialist on toxicology, right? And they understand that adaptability is the key. It's like Columbus. What Columbus was brilliant about, whether you like, you know, he wasn't a particularly pleasant character, but Columbus did something that no one else did. He hedged. Those ships did not take the same route, right? What he's doing is he's, he's putting in his, in his plan that he doesn't know. If Columbus would have been right, it turns out that the world was 20,000 miles longer than he thought it was, right? He, they'd have all died. But what he got right was, I'm not sure, so I'm going to hedge. And that, that's what these serial entrepreneurs do. They get that, and they build their teams for that. Yeah, I, you know... I think about this concept in terms of survivable bets. Like if you're if you're trying to invent the future, by definition it's unknowable, right? Absolutely. And so how can we how can we try this with enough horsepower behind it? I feel like it's like a balance beam. I'd love for you to weigh in on this, but it seems almost like it's like a balance beam of how do we how do we put enough into this so if that we're so if we're right we can actually get somewhere with it but if we're wrong it's survivable and we can go you know we're we still exist to do the next experiment. I think that's true, but you need to think of it like a funnel, and you need to think that how the okay. X work is different. At the top of a funnel, okay. when you're starting up, you hedge. You hedge because the uncertainty is much higher. There's no data on the future, and people who try and see the future first are inevitably wrong or stuck in the planning cycle. One of the two, right? 
So what you do is now you're running the experiments and inevitably it's not the one that you thought that was going to work that works, right? You see this all the time, particularly in technology. You thought it was going to be one thing, it's another. Then the, as you move down the pyramid, now you have to get figure out how to make the stupid thing, you know, how to, you know, how to, how to sell the stupid thing, how to get the soft tissue of the organization to do the stupid thing at scale. And I have a real problem with this. I'm very anti-design thinking. Because design thinking is just the top of the funnel. Oh, look it. I've made a phone. It's got platinum contacts. It's got great connectivity. Yes, but the phone would cost $10,000 and there's not enough rare earth on the planet to make the stupid thing. So the notion is, as you move down, what, what constitutes design thinking becomes much more optimized because you have to be able to do it at scale. And you've seen this a lot, Jess, I'm sure in your career. A really good product or service that couldn't make the transition from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel, right? And so how you hedge at the top is you try and have a much wider array because the risk-reward proposition is much uh, much smaller. That's why you give 100 biotechs a million dollars in A round, right? But as you get well, where you're scaling, and this is where the drug companies ran into trouble, right, in the 90s. You know, you put a billion five on a drug that doesn't pan out because you didn't want to bet two million at the front end and you've lost the billion five. And this is why the consolidation happened. You get you understand risk backwards. Yeah. Well, it does make me it does make me think, how can we be more intentional about this? You know, so our new real estate investment trust, right? We did a, a regulation D five oh six C offering, which basically just means, you know, for the last eighty years it used to be illegal to advertise a private deal to the general public. Now I am allowed to do general solicitation, but I can only take money from accredited investors. Okay. So it's going to let me have so many more people check our stuff out and give us feedback and try and do better. But to begin with, I went to my millionaire entrepreneur buddies who, who I knew like I could have, I could do a really terrible job and come back and pitch them again next week. You know what I mean? Like I went, I went to, well, I did two groups. I did people whose money I wasn't actually trying to get. And I went to a handful of buddies whose money I am trying to get, but we've just got enough of a relationship. I can follow my face 10 times in a row and they'll still look at it the 11th time, mm -hmm. you know? And to me, it almost occurs like, as you think about, as you say that thing about the funnel, it makes me think like, okay, my guess is going to be half right and half wrong when I start. So then I got to keep the half that's right. And then I got to guess for the other half. And so if I'm half right and half wrong there, now I'm 75% right. And I half right, half wrong. Now I'm 80 something. And I just like work over time down this pyramid you're talking about of closer and closer to the real answer. Is that, is that that's close to what exactly you're saying? Exactly right. So at the beginning, I like to tell people when, we, when they come up with an idea, I'm like, one of these horses will run and I'll never get it right. And I've done that. You know, I've been everywhere. So, and I never get it right. It's always the horse. It's the nag that runs in the rain. I don't know. But as you go down and you, and you move down the funnel and you start to scale the business, then you have to get it right. Then the notion is it's going to naturally converge. So at the top of the funnel, future-oriented, out there, more radical, speed and magnitude, much higher. But you get the bottom of the funnel, well, you're now dealing with constraints of, which, which incidentally, this is the part people are missing about COVID. There is no doubt that we will have a, a vaccine. I don't think it's, I think it's St. September. I think it's January, but we'll have a vaccine. Now, the bigger question is what? Are there enough vials on the planet to make this stupid thing? And oh, by the way, are there enough Walgreens and uh, CVSs to drive through and get popped on one of these? So, you know, that becomes, you that's the part when you got it down and you got to have the optimization people come in. Then you got to figure out how to take a, a length of pipe out of it. 
Yeah, well, one of the things that I think that if you're in the VC world that you get more than anyone is how to accelerate the failure cycle. And think about it this way. All learning is developmental, all of it. And if you don't believe that, take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of your spouse. And everybody can tell you at what age you stopped learning to draw, right? Speak a foreign language, play an instrument, doesn't matter whether you're eight or you're 80. You're going through the failure cycle, right? One of the interesting things is there are there's this whole notion that innovation and creativity is effortless superiority. It's the opposite. You're going to be schlepping through. You're on version one. You know, version one, the first draft of anything is terrible. You know, the issue is how quickly can you get to the version that you're going to publish or the version that the drug works, right? So, you know, so it's called versioning, right? So the notion is, I think the big thing about the failure cycle is instead of trying to avoid it, you put things in place at the top of the funnel to accelerate it. So you, so you learn what really works and doesn't. Stanley, would you add anything to that? I think what he said is absolutely correct. I think that's that's the that's the thing that I was asking him to explain is like if you know the faster you fail, right? The sooner you know, oh, that route doesn't work. So let me try this other one. So the other thing that we always emphasize is also the ability to do discipline experiment. Yes, this is coming back to the design thinking things. If you think about design thinking only as stage one of innovation and you think about that you have to get to scale, what's gonna happen is you're gonna make you're going to have you're going to you're going to marginalize the utility of that decision. You're going to make a decision in stage one that was ex, that was uh, an easy decision and expedited what you're doing. But in stage four, where you're spending millions of dollars and you got to get to scale, it becomes the bottleneck. And that's the classic problem. You're not looking across the entire array. And this is basically where creative thinking comes in. You have to think differently at the beginning of a project than you do at the end. It's a different form of thinking, right? And the notion is one size doesn't fit all. You're going to have to you're going to have to look for things like where that's anomalous. At the beginning of the system, you want to accelerate failure cycle. At the end, you want to avoid it, right? Completely the opposite. And the people that should be running those experiments are different. The person at the front end of the thing, you know, I go back to my my Apple AIS years or the Steve Jobs years, you know, they were brilliant at the beginning of the funnel. They were not so brilliant at the end. If you remember the old days, what the product was like, you know, on the other hand, you know, if you look at uh, Toyota in the old days, they were brilliant at the end of it, not so brilliant at the front. So the real question, the real difficulty is how do you put it all together, right? How do you hand it off? That's it. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I think about our team at, at Greystoke and my my brother, I've been, you know, it's basically this millionaire guy that was my mentor 18 years ago, eventually let me become his business partner. And then a few years later, we talked to my brother into quitting pre-med school and joining <laughs> us. And we've been doing stuff on and off ever since, okay? And and he, my brother and I cover such different ends of the spectrum, right? And and like, you know, I'm the guy, I'm the, your, your classic, like, ADHD visionary waves his arms around a lot guy. And he's like the guy, I remember we sat on the board of this big energy company. We were with like these guys who are like our dad's age. It was like three millionaires and a billionaire. And we got to go to this billionaire guy's house like every six weeks for the board meeting. Yep. Right. And my brother wouldn't say anything unless he knew what he was saying was completely accurate. Like conversation was not a place for exploration, which was interesting because he got a ton of credibility with these guys because like they would, he was like 26 and they were in their sixties and they would take his advice over other petroleum engineers and people like this, because he only said stuff that was accurate, right? Or he didn't open right. his mouth. And, and it's interesting for me, as you say that to think, yeah, we are trying, you know, we are trying not to like blend in with the million other investment funds and the million other real estate funds out there, right? right? Like we could easily be seen as a commodity. 
And so we're coming up with some crazy ideas and doing some things completely different. And I probably need to be the guy that hands off experiments. Like after we get enough traction somewhere, this probably needs to transition from me to him as who's in like who's in charge of that going around the f- failure cycle to figure out what we should be really that's doing. Exactly right. right. And, that, that's that's Buffett and Munger. That's that that's what I do as a career. I built I build these really interesting ways of, of doing things. Not that different than you, but the difference is I know not to run the firm. Stanny runs the firm. She runs the firm. And the people who are around me are very different than I am, right? And in a sense, this is going to sound funny. They kind of manage me. And I know I'm being managed. I understand that I'm going to take shots. They don't want to take. I'm going to say yes when they don't want to say yes. And so, and I'm, but, it, but I think what works is we've learned how to use the positive tension. Doesn't mean I'm easily surrendering. I'm sure you don't either, you know, because I once I get an idea, I'm, I'm very big on I'm going to build it. I'm going to build it, right? And I, I believe, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I believe that my skills are better than they really are. <laughs> so so the, the people around me, and even writing books. Part of the reason I write books with Stanny is she has a very different voice. She's a very different take on things. And when I get when I'm left alone to write books, I write I write magnum opuses that are very large. And, you know, and the good news is they get great reviews and they're used at the best universities for about a year. But nobody reads them. When I write with her, people read our books. If this makes sense to you. So you've got to find you've got to be willing to look at where your strengths are in earnest and where they're not. Yeah, and I, well, I think that knowing that you do have blind spot, acknowledging that, and figuring out who actually could help me with my blind spot. Well, what's funny for us is like our strengths are so pronounced that we that we clash all the time about stuff. Right? I never. I want to change things forever, and he wants to do it once and keep it the same forever. Right? So lucky for us, our partner John in the middle is like the referee. And so I bounce, you know, because for every like hundred ideas, I typically have a good one, you know, right? So <laughs> I bounce a hundred ideas through him, and he tells me no or not yet. But he's like, he's so delicate and smart. Like he, like you say, I, I get managed, right? <laughs> and then, and then when he says like, okay, I think we could actually run with that one, then I, then I go like test it out on some people and get some feedback, and then he lets me tell my brother about <laughs> it, you know. But like at our last fund, it got to the point this is how we figured this out. It got to the point where we would have these like circular conversations for like two hours about something because I'm figuring it out through conversation. Right. And eventually Nick was like, can you guys do all that? And then just call me back and I'll come back in a couple (laughs) hours. So that's how it kind of started. That's that's part of creative thinking. That's a type of creative thinking is dialogical thinking, the voice in your head. Right. And dialogical thinking means I'm going to it's see there are different forms of that. One form of dialogical thinking is people think out loud with other people to get their input, right? And that's more of a community-based. You're not that way. You're like me. You're doing dialogical thinking because you're trying to figure out what you think. You're searching. You're in the discovery mode, right? Well, the point is you need all these different types of thinkers, right? And the book gets into this. There's different levels of thinking and, you know, it's like being right-handed or left-handed. And what, what, but here's the difference. It's not agnostic where people are saying, well, everyone's different and it's just okay and kumbaya. No, it's like a football game. You know, what's the down? How, what's the distance? How much time is left? Who are we playing? Are we on offense or defense? Yes, it's a different way to think, depending on what that is, right? And, and, you know, this is where those serial entrepreneurs are brilliant and where VCs who are really successful are brilliant. They'll go phase one, phase two, phase three. And you know where you're seeing this? You can see this in how 
we, we keep coming back to COVID, but how COVID has developed. So at the bottom of that pyramid are university people. You know, I teach at the second largest research university in this country, right? Hopkins is actually one. It's not Stanford or Harvard. It's Michigan's the second largest. So the notion is there's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of research people, lots of, lots of tar grinding it out. And then there are the tech transfer places and the companies that basically these roll into. And then eventually there are startups that make applications and biotech and et cetera for all of these, right? But you've got in every one of these, you've got to different kinds of people and different kinds of culture because there's a different task, right? So you're thinking creatively, but in a different way. But you have to be thinking upstream and downstream. What's happening upstream and what's happening downstream that's going to be different? And you need different kinds of thinkers. And I'm not a big believer that we're all going to develop into, you know, be able to do everything. That's a, that's a fallacy. You know, you're going to be able to take the three things that were given to you at birth for whatever reason, whether it's biological or whatever you believe about the world. And those things have to be improved and they have to come together in a way that's valuable. Well, and I had to like... I had to be honest about my track record and how many of my ideas that I was so convinced of didn't end up so great, you know, and develop the trust with John and Nick to be for them, you know, to go if like they are really intelligent folks and, and our new partner, Lindsay, you know, she started she ran our our charity child rescue when we started it 10 years ago. Like these are three people I I trust so inherently so if I can't logically help them come to the same conclusion with me, then maybe there's maybe there's something I haven't examined about this idea I've decided to Now, so you great. hit the nail on you the know? head here. This is very critical. You've got different types of creative thinkers, but you have trust. And that's the difference between constructive and destructive conflict. Constructive conflict means I don't think the same way you do. I don't agree with your idea, but I'm not marginalizing you. And I trust you, right? I have trust in you. That's, and I think if, if I may editorialize, that's what we're missing in America right now. Micro-segmenting from social media has made us believe that the other people are bad. They're not bad. They have different ideas. And where, in the old days, we would meet each other because we would go, whether it was the evening news or whether it was the, you know, the town square or the church or whatever, we'd meet each other. We don't meet each other right now, and we need to. That's our strength. Otherwise, Monological cultures, cultures that have one culture. Think about how efficient the Chinese are at reverse engineering, right? Think about, you know, Shenzhen and how they, what I call dumpster diving, how they're going to be able to take something apart and put it back together in a matter of seconds. That's, that's a different culture. That's their playbook. Our playbook has to be wider, more diverse, and hedging. That's our playbook. I love it. Well, everybody, go to Amazon.com, get your copy of The Creative Mindset, Mastering Six Skills That Empower Innovation by Jeff DeGraff and Stanley DeGraff. And in part three, we're going to dive into what those, what those six skills are. So thanks, everybody, for listening.